Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So I think a boundary is anything that separates you from something you want to do, somebody you want to talk to, um, somebody you want to be. And oftentimes... There are logistical boundaries. I wanted to be a freelance artist, but I didn't believe that I would make enough money, so I stayed at my job. So some would see the job as the boundary between me and the freelance career. So switching that perspective and seeing the job as something that enables me to pursue the freelance career without the fear of can I pay my bills without the fear of being on the street because they can't afford rent without the fear of the anxiety that I might start living with inside of me because I have all of these other fears. Um, I think it's a perspective, a change in perspective is choosing to see the fear as something different. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mira, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you've long been on my list of people that I've wanted to interview. And, um, you know, coincidentally, right after making that list, uh, your publisher actually, your publisher sent me a copy of your book. So all of which we will get into. But before we get there, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did what your parents did for a living end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Okay. So my parent, my mom is a social worker and she worked as a social worker in a Jersey City public school um, in Jersey City, New Jersey. And that was very interesting because social work isn't generally what the Indian population goes into, um, anything dealing with mental illness. So I think she is a bit of an anomaly, which is awesome. My dad, on the other hand, is an electrical engineer, which is not uncommon for me to say. And generally, it does not surprise people when I tell them that that's what he does. Mm-hmm. And I was raised with a very safe and pragmatic mindset. Um, my parents are immigrants. They came here when they were 27, 28, and they raised me and my sister in New Jersey. And they wanted us to succeed, which is what all immigrant parents want of their children. 
And unfortunately for them, uh, me and my sister are extremely uh, liberal children that believe in the arts and we're not interested in being doctors, engineers, biochemists, or anything on the long list, pharmacists, nothing on the list of stable careers that they would have preferred (laughs) me to have. Uh Um, So I was always interested in writing. And my sister, too. We're both writers. We both went to school for English degrees, which did nothing to offer stability or a career. And I was actually lucky enough upon graduation to get an internship at IEEE, which is a extremely prestigious organization uh, for electrical engineers. And I worked as an editor there for six years, editing papers that electrical engineers wrote. And my dad was extremely proud and extremely excited to have me working there. And I was the complete opposite. And after about a year of working there, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I felt very... I felt a little bit like I had closed in on myself. I felt very small. My world was very small. It made me extremely depressed to think about spending the rest of my days um, in this office, in this extremely stable job with amazing benefits and flexibility. And I could have a long career there. And I wanted anything but that. And I began drawing really just as a way to feel more connected to myself, to feel a little more of that possibility and imagination that had always driven me as a child to feel more of my spirit and to feel a little bit less as a robot. And after about a year of working as a freelance illustrator, I made up my mind that this is what I was going to do. And I was going to quit my job and be a full-time illustrator. And again, I still go back about back and forth about whether this is unfortunately for me or fortunately for me. Um, I had my parents who are immigrants and that were like, that's great that you like making art and we support you and we think your work is beautiful, but just don't quit your job. And I said, okay. And I kept working for six years until I got to a place where I was able to provide myself with security and an income and, you know, flourish with my freelance career. And it was only about six months ago that I finally left my job and have been full-time freelancing as an illustrator and writer. Mm, Wow. So it's been a long path getting here. Yeah. Um, So many questions come to that. So (laughs) I'm curious, you know, the sort of cultural tension with your parents, I know because I've experienced it, but mine was a bit different in that I kind of listened to everything that they had to say, did everything they told me to do. And then when the results sucked, they said, okay, you know what? I'm 31. I've done it your way. I'm done doing it your way. Um, I'm curious you know, one, how, how you've resolved that tension, you know, with your parents and did it, was it something that was there even when you were younger, uh, you know, while you were growing up? Cause my mom will deny it to the day she dies, but she once told me in high school that if I didn't become a doctor, she wouldn't pay for me to go to college. Right. That's not, I mean, I'm not even surprised to hear that. Uh, I will say no, my parents were, I'm very proud of them for being as liberal as they are. I think it's, very difficult for them sometimes to support me and my sister in things that we want to do, not because they don't feel supportive or they don't want to give us that encouragement, but 
more of social and cultural uh, stigma. Mm -hmm. So I think it's hard for them to be part of their communities and extended families and know that their kids are the ones that, you know, aren't doctors and aren't pharmacists and, you know, might not life might not lead the same life that my cousins do. And when I was growing up, they were really, really great about how weird we were. I had tattoos. I dyed my hair every color in the rainbow. I had piercings. I went through an extremely unfortunate punk rock phase. I went through <laughs> a rap phase. I wore a lot of safety pins and, you know, things that I'm sure they were just like, what is happening? And is she okay? And at what point do we intervene? But they always gave me the freedom to express myself. And they never, they, they said to me, they said, listen, if you become a doctor and do artwork and writing in your free time, like you'll have the stability of a career and good income. And maybe you'll still feel fulfilled. But when I said, no, that's not what I want. And I'm going to go to school for liberal arts. They said, okay, do what's going to make you happy. Just make sure you can support yourself and take care of yourself. You never want to be dependent on somebody else. Uh-huh. And I think those were good lessons and good values. And I, to this day, am determined to be that way, to be dependent, independent and support myself. And, you know, I do think that if I couldn't do that with my career, I would find stability and an income and I would do whatever I had to do to provide for myself. Mm. And today in 2017, I sometimes feel ashamed to say that out loud because we are currently in a, you know, millennial culture where people are taught that they should absolutely do what they love and they should only spend their time in meaningful ways And that is what we should be encouraging all of our children to do. And I believe that. And, you know, if I have kids, that's what I would teach them also. But I also believe that independence is priceless. And if that means that I have to have a job to do the things I want to do, to eat the things I want to eat, to go to the places I want to go, I'll do that. Mm. And I wouldn't consider myself a sellout for doing that. But I think a lot of other people would. Yeah, you know, I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, at times I wonder if we've done a disservice by perpetuating this message because I think we create, you know, a, a level of dissatisfaction in people's lives where there isn't one. It's like, hey, look at me, you know, living with my laptop and, you know, coconuts and palm trees on the beach. Here's my latest Facebook post about it. Um, you can live this way, too, is, is kind of <clears throat> I think that's the huge disservice that we've done with this narrative. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're not. uh you're not preparing the youth to deal with, you know, look at our health care. Um, look at medical costs and just rents are increasing and people are being pushed out of cities. They're not being prepared to have the life that they actually want because people want to do what they love, but they also want shelter and to be well fed and to be able to have experiences. And sometimes doing what you love is not going to lead to those things, or at least not for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if I had different parents, I may have quit a long time ago and I may have jumped right into freelancing. And while I was at the job, I really felt like I could go so much faster and so much further if I wasn't giving 50 hours a week to this job. 
And instead, it's been such a slow, slow, slow climb for me. And it's been very incremental. And it's been two steps forward and 25 steps backwards. But now that I'm finally here, I feel it's invaluable that I have the luxury of never having to have worried about how to pay my bills. And I've never felt the anxiety of, can I go here or can I do this? Because I've always had that that's, you know, stability from my job. And I waited until I could provide that for myself from my freelance career. And I am really happy that I did because I don't know if it's always necessary. I, I did it what I consider to be a hard way, but I don't know if it's necessary for you to have the struggle that many people have where they can't pay their bills and they can't feed themselves and to do all of that for your passion. I find it admirable, but it wasn't the road for me. And I don't know if I would ever want it to be the road for me. Mm. How do you think about money uh, differently now or do you at all? Um, I see money purely as a path to freedom. Um, I see it as something that will enable me to give to myself and to other people and that will keep anxiety and worry away from me so that I have the mind space to be creative and to focus on more emotional uh, struggles that I think everybody deals with and needs guidance in tackling. And I also will say that I find it to be less worthy than time. I think time is the most valuable commodity that we have. And it's finite. And you don't get to do it over. And I do want to spend my time in a way that is meaningful. And my work at my job was not meaningful to me. Um, And the reason I stayed there, yes, was that I didn't struggle. I didn't have to struggle freelancing, just hoping that my freelance career would float me. But it is also the reason why I started the path of a freelance career with the goal of eventually quitting my job is so that I could spend all of my time thereafter in a way that was meaningful to me. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing that struck me in our conversation is, is you mentioned, you know, um, part of what, you know, caused you to start drawing was connecting to this part of yourself um, that you weren't in touch with. And it, this is something I've asked in, in some form or another to a lot of people. Why do you think that we lose touch with that sort of need for creative expression and that part of ourselves as we become older? And how do you think people should bring it back? Um, I do think money is related to this answer. I think that as we get older and there are more pressures from society, our parents, ourselves, to make what you know everybody else considers to be a good living, um, we focus on actions that will help us do that. And creative work most often is not going to help you make money. And so I think we push it aside as, you know, if we're lucky, a hobby. If we're not lucky, then a luxury or something frivolous or, you know, something that isn't meant for us. I know a lot of people I've talked to ask me where my creativity comes from. They don't believe they have it. They don't think it's inside them. 
they don't know how to express it. They say, oh, I can't do that. I'm not creative. And the truth is that creativity traces every single thing that we do. There's creativity. There was creativity in my day job. Um, I didn't feel it was enough for me, but it was there. And if I never decided to pursue a freelance career, I do feel that I would have tried to find the most creative ways to do that job in order to make it fulfilling. And I think that the reason people lose their creativity and that part of creativity that connects them to themselves is honestly because they're told not to prioritize it. And I think that is a negative symptom of living in our culture where creativity is reserved for a select few and they're very successful with their creativity. And that is not, it's painted um, as something that isn't possible for most people. And I disagree with that very much. So something I'd be curious to hear your perspective on, um, particularly just because I've, I've wrapped a book on the subject. So the title of the book is An Audience of One. And, you know, the core argument is that we've spent, you know, so many years, uh, especially particularly with the rise of the Internet and technology, um, with this idea that what is the point of creating anything if a million people aren't going to see this or a thousand people aren't going to see this or it's not going to make me rich or famous. And I actually disagree with that notion completely because I think as a result, we're missing out on some really amazing work because that is sort of the default narrative. I mean, just scroll through your Facebook newsfeed and that's, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about with all the ads. And I'm just curious what your perspective is on that. On whether if um, not a lot of people are going to see your work, whether it's worth well, it. Yeah, exactly. Like is the, you know, do you, do you believe that there absolutely has to be an audience for a person to get value out of it? And do you think that that actually gets in the way of their creativity? I, absolutely do not think an audience is, you know, indicative of the value or the meaning that you will derive from doing something creative. I actually think that nothing that you do or say should be for anybody else. I think everything that you do should be for yourself first. And then if you cultivate an audience or other people see it and other people like it, that's great. But I don't think that any meaning or any self-satisfaction genuinely comes from an audience. I think it comes from you doing something that you have some sort of pull towards. There's, there's something inside you that needs to come out. And when you let it, that is such satisfaction in itself, just that you listen to that and you... You made the painting or you wrote down the poem or you read the book, you know, or you went for the walk. I think that it's important to listen to yourself and do, do things for yourself first um, and to find satisfaction in that. I do think that finding satisfaction um, for yourself in minute activities and routine tasks is something that is a habit that needs to be cultivated because we are taught that unless millions of people are seeing something, it doesn't have value. Mm -hmm. And if millions of people aren't demanding, you know, aren't demanding your work, then it doesn't have value. And that's because that's how capitalism works. But for, you know, real satisfaction, spiritual satisfaction, you know, as a person in a world to feel meaning, from something, I think you do that solely for yourself. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. 
Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm, wow. Well, let's do this. Um, let's shift gears and start talking specifically about the ideas in the book. And I'm curious, what prompted um, your decision to explore fear in particular? Like, what led to you writing this book of all the books you could possibly write? So I think I think most people are very familiar with fear, but I felt in particular that it is a way that I have always lived in my life. I spent the majority of my life up until a year and a half, two years ago, living in fear. Most of my decisions were fear-based. Um, a lot of it is from how I was raised because I did have parents who have literally nothing their entire lives while they lived in India. And being raised in poverty, they, when they finally came to the United States, when they worked their butts off to make a living, to become middle class, to live in a very, very affluent town where, you know, which was entirely white, which was not fun for them. And to do that so me and my sister could go to really good schools and feel safe and walk home alone and not have to worry about crime and things like that. Um, I was raised kind of under the scarcity mindset, um, which basically told me that there isn't enough for everybody. There isn't enough success for everybody. There isn't enough stability for everybody. And also with this fear, which I still have to this day, that everything can just disappear really quickly. I can work really, really hard for something and it can be gone the next day. And that's a very debilitating fear to um, fight against on a daily basis because it seeps under every single thing that you do. And there's no comfort or satisfaction from any achievement because the reaction is, oh, well, it can it could just unravel tomorrow. And what happened was I got really sick of myself. I got really sick of living in fear. I got really sick of telling myself I couldn't do things or that I shouldn't try because surely I would fail at it. Or what will other people think? You know, that was a big, I have been raised not only by my parents, but by America, I think, to care about what other people think. And the truth is that I really don't. And that I am much more free when I only care about what I think and a few close, you know, people who I trust and look up to what they think. But I don't, I didn't want to make my decisions out of fear anymore. And so far, my entire life was living in fear. And so what happened was that I found an artist residency program in Iceland and I applied for it. And I thought to myself, this is really far away. And also it's in Iceland, which looks magical. And I, at that point, really, really craved, this is 2015. So I had been working um, towards a freelance career for about three years. And I was also at my job and I lived in New York. And I worked from home for my full-time job and then also for my freelance. So I was literally in my room, in my apartment for a billion hours a day for years. 
And I felt very isolated, which is ironic because I lived in New York and there's a million people there. But New York can be very isolating. And I really, really wanted to find a creative community. And I thought that that was maybe something that would help. So anyway, so I applied to this program and I got in, which was amazing. And I went there. And for the first week, me and and another friend drove around the entire island just exploring everything. And we climbed cliffs and mountains and we hiked for miles and miles and we swam in geothermal pools. And I did so many things that I had never done because I always told myself I wasn't an athlete. And so I couldn't do that. And, you know, I didn't have the strength for this or I didn't have the endurance for that. And so many stories that I had weaved together and told myself for about 28 years, I was just sick of them. And I said I wasn't going to live by them anymore, and I kind of wanted to get away from myself. And so I went to this other country, and I was just going to be somebody else, somebody that I wasn't sick of. And I did all of these things, and I had a lot of conversations with my friend, Lee Crutchley, um, who came with me. And we talked about fear and how we were basically living lives governed by fear, and we didn't really understand why. Everything we had been doing and all of the decisions we had been making, what kind of habits and, you know, results of what other people had been telling us we should be doing. And when you remove yourself from all of that for a week, two weeks, three weeks, and there's nobody there talking to you every day, your friends that you talk to every day aren't there, your family is not there, your job's not there, you're just alone in, you know, a country where you don't know anybody And there's nothing but landscape and quiet. The country is so quiet. And all you have to do is listen to yourself. And everything, my fear seemed so, it seemed so meaningless that I had been listening to it the wrong way. And I decided that I was going to try to see what it would teach me instead. And that's really where the idea for the book was born where I knew that I had so far lived this life completely cultivated by and governed by fear. And I thought, well, what if I didn't see fear as such a terrible thing? What if I stopped blaming fear for the reasons why I was the person I was and wasn't the person that I wanted to be? And that's really where it all came from. That one trip where I really let myself escaped the boundaries that I had always been placing on myself and thought maybe there is a world outside of the one that I've built that is much larger and much more beautiful and maybe I'm allowed to be a part of that one if I let myself wow so a couple of questions uh, from this. You, know, you mentioned this idea of, of boundaries that you've created for yourself. So I'm curious, one, how do people figure out what boundaries they've created for themselves? And more importantly, how do they escape those boundaries? And three, how do they make the transition from seeing fear as something awful to seeing some fear as something that they can learn from? So I think a boundary is anything that separates you from something you want to do, somebody you want to talk to. Um, somebody you want to be. And oftentimes there are logistical boundaries. I wanted to be a freelance artist, but I didn't believe 
that I would make enough money, so I stayed at my job. So some would see the job as the boundary between me and the freelance career. So switching that perspective and seeing the job as something that enables me to pursue the freelance career without the fear of can I pay my bills, without the fear of being on the street because I can't afford rent, without the fear of the anxiety that I might start living with inside of me because I have all of these other fears. Um, I think it's a perspective, a change in perspective is choosing to see the fear as something different. Um, And I started seeing my boundaries, in particular, the ones that had been keeping me from the life I wanted to have, which was, you know, something as silly as climbing a mountain. I was always like, I'm not an athlete. I don't do physical things. I'm not strong. Those are all cop-outs, you know? And the real fear was, I'm not, people are going to think I'm silly or people are going to think I'm stupid when I can't keep up or I'm going to let the team down because I'm not good enough or, you know, it could be appearances. How, how am I going to look in that uniform? Or I'm, I don't look strong enough. I'm not tall enough. All of these are boundaries that I had placed on myself. And the truth is, you know, maybe I would have been a great athlete. Maybe I would be climbing way more mountains than I'm, I am now, which is something I've started doing. Maybe I would be a stronger person if instead of saying I'm not strong, so I'm not going to engage in physical activity, I would actually engage in it. And obviously by, you know, repeated action become stronger. So I think that the boundaries are excuses, really, most of the time. And we put them up because we're afraid of failing. We're afraid of what we're afraid of being judged. You know, what will other people think and how will they see me? And how will that in turn make me feel about myself? And one of the best solutions that I came to for overcoming boundaries is I started asking myself, so what? You know, so what if I look really stupid? So what if people think that I let the whole team down? So what if I fall or I can only make it a pathway up the mountain? So what if I get injured? So what if I break an ankle? And, you know, when you ask yourself, so what, really, the answer is nothing. You know, so what if somebody thinks I'm stupid? Nothing. They're going to think I'm stupid and life goes on and the world will, will turn and, you know, tomorrow I'll do something new. And that those two words have really helped me a lot in seeing that a lot of the fear I have is rootless. It's not based in rationale. It's not um, the result of an experience that has taught me to be afraid in order to care for myself and protect myself. A lot of it is just irrational. A lot of it um, comes from stories that I've completely made up that have never happened and that probably will never happen, but that I convince myself may happen to prevent myself from failing and fulfilling this, you know, terrible prophecy. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of times the boundaries are fictional, and I think being able um, to cultivate that really starts with asking yourself, you know, so what? 
but also why am I afraid? What am I afraid of? What will happen if what, I, what I'm afraid of comes true? And making it a routine to ask yourself those questions every time you feel that impulse of no, I'm not going to do that or oh my goodness, I feel really scared. Developing that habit to question those fears helps you determine which ones are irrational and thus a fictional boundary you've set up and which ones are rational and are trying to protect you. And by being able to do that, you can at least make an informed decision on what your next action is going to be instead of running away from the fear or shutting it down, which is what we are taught to do. What do you think differentiates the person who gives into their fear in you know a moment in which they want to move forward versus the one who doesn't? Habit. I think that repeatedly giving into fear and folding yourself up and saying, I can't do this is a habit. And it takes time and determination and honesty and most of all, just, you know, stubbornness to break a habit. I don't think that the person that isn't giving into fear is stronger or smarter or, you know, more competent than the person that isn't. I think that they have developed a habit where they see their fear and recognize it and say, okay, I feel really scared about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I know that next time I want to do something and I feel scared, I'm going to feel scared. It's not Fear is not a consequence or a punishment. It is not something that you can beat. It's not something that's going to stop showing up. It's always going to be there. But what you can do is change how you react to it. And I think the only thing that differentiates people um, that see it and keep going anyway and those who stop in their tracks is just habit. Wow. So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned earlier making decisions out of fear, and I'm curious if there have been any in particular that you've regretted that you've made out of fear, and I'm curious what decisions you've made in spite of fear that you don't regret at all. Um, so I touched on this a little bit with the job thing, which, you know, might sound so silly, but it is something I think about a lot. Did I wait too long? Did I live in fear way too long under the guise of, you know, being pragmatic and responsible? And all of these values that, you know, I've been taught from my parents, or was it the right thing to do? And I mean, you know that there's no right thing. There is no correct path to take. But I think that all of my decisions up until then to choose to go to school for English instead of art, which is something my dad, who adorably still gets really upset over, he's like, I can't believe we didn't send you to art school you wanted to go to art school so badly, and we said no because we didn't think you could get a job. And look at you now. We should send you to art school. But the truth is that if I went to art school, maybe I would hate art, and I wouldn't want to be an artist. And maybe I'd be happily be like, I don't know, in finance or something. Who knows? Um, but I did, you know, I did make those decisions out of fear. I did say, yeah, that's right. Like, I need to make sure I can get a job. I need to make sure I'm not on the street. And when you're of, you know, Indian immigrant parents, everything is like the extreme version of awfulness that could possibly happen. <laughs> right. So it's never like, 
oh, if you're an English major, you're not going to get a job. It's you're going to be starving on the street. And do you know how many starving people we grew up with? You know, you haven't been to India, but it's complete poverty. And this is what can happen to you. And it's a lot of, you know, dramatic worst case scenarios. And it's not to say that that can't happen. Of course it can. But the likelihood was not great. If I, you know, became an English major and I got, you know, a job that paid terribly and I had to do that and I couldn't pay my bills or I couldn't take care of myself. The truth is that I did have support, which I'm very lucky to have. But more than that is that I have the ability to go get another job. I have the ability to learn a new skill and to apply myself and, you know, make things different for myself. So I do think, you know, if I listened to myself at 18 and went to art school, maybe I wouldn't be an artist now or maybe I would be. And maybe I would be so much further ahead Mm -hmm. or maybe I'd be really far behind. I don't know. But I do get upset that so much of my childhood and formative years were spent in fear and making decisions out of fear. The fear of what do other people think? I can't believe how long that's all that, how, for how many years that's all that mattered to me. Oh, what will people think? What if nobody likes me? How many years I felt so isolated and so unhappy because I was convinced that other people wouldn't accept me. And how many years I actually tried to make myself fit in. How many, you know, doing things that I wasn't interested in or spending time with people that I didn't really like just because I thought that would get me some sort of social acceptance and by extension, fulfillment or happiness, which, you know, it never does. You always feel fake. You don't have what you really want. And what other people think, you know, that's a, it doesn't amount to anything. It's a falsehood. And so I, I get upset that I made so many decisions out of fear, but more that I just lived within fear, that I had the darkness surrounding me, that I felt the anxiety, and I let it stay inside me for so long because that is just not healthy. And I wonder what kind of person I would have been all throughout my 20s if I had decided that I was going to see fear differently a long time ago. Wow. So <clears throat> I wanted to ask you about the, the subtitle of the book and, and talk specifically about this. You talk about finding magic in the unknown. And I'm curious, one, what do you mean by that and how do you do it? So the unknown is really the basis um, of all fear. It's anything that hasn't happened, anything that could happen, and any place that you've never been before. So the thing about the unknown is when you, you know, sit at home and you're like, wouldn't it be great if I could do this or this and, you know, live here and be this kind of person? That's the unknown that you're describing. And to you in that moment, it is beautiful and you think wistfully about it. But when you let your fear um, take over, the unknown is a dark place where only negative things happen and anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And it is the worst case scenario that you believe um, is the only outcome. 
And so I really want I really wanted readers to understand that the unknown is not just the dark place. It's also the beautiful place. And the problem is not that, you know, some people's unknowns are beautiful and some people's are scary. It's that some people are choosing not to see the beautiful parts. It's all, you know, everything is a balance and everything has multiple dimensions and the unknown is no different. It holds scary things and beautiful things. The point is that when you live fearfully, when you live your life in fear, you avoid going there at all. You only stick to what you know. You only stick to your routine. You stay in the job that you hate because you're afraid of the unknown. You take the same route to work every day because you're afraid of the unknown. You don't make any new friends, even though you feel you've outgrown your friends from childhood because you're afraid of the unknown. Um, you know, it's a, it's a human desire for comfort that keeps you away from the unknown, along with a human fear of, I don't know what's going to happen. And so in the book, I really wanted people to understand that the unknown just holds possibility. That's what it is. It's every possibility that you could imagine. And the only way you can make any of those yours is by venturing into it and to learn to under, you know, understand and accept that the unknown doesn't have to be a dark, terrible place where something, you know, bad is going to happen. It can be a beautiful place where everything you've ever wanted can happen. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's funny because I think of this quote from my friend Rima who said, uncertainty is a form of limitlessness. Uncertainty is a form of limitlessness. Yeah, absolutely. And uncertainty is really, you know, that is the one word probably that you could use to describe life. Mm -hmm. Everything is uncertain. There's no guarantee. And the only way to get anywhere is to become comfortable with that. Because become comfortable with the in-between, with the fact that everything is going to be constantly moving and shifting and there are no guarantees. And you can't, I mean, you can, I guess, stay in one place, but that is going to be a small life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's going to have limits. It's going to have boundaries. And you can think that it's safe, but I actually don't think it's safe at all. I think it's very detrimental and harmful. Mm. Wow. So I have two final questions for you. Um, during all of this period, have there been any sort of rock bottom, dark night of the soul moments, um, you know, from starting where you did to getting to where you are today? Um, yes, there has been, I mean, there's been a lot of those. And I think that all of them came from a place of isolation feeling very alone in what I was doing, feeling very misunderstood by people who were close to me. And I think mostly it came from not accepting myself. A lot of the dark times I've had and a lot of the complete, am I always going to feel this way? And am I always going to, you know, feel completely disconnected from the world and from everybody in it came from me not allowing myself to be who I am. It came from placing those limits on myself. It came from 
telling myself stories, making up stories, basically, that I would be rejected by the world, by everybody in it. Um, I forced myself to crouch in a tiny little closet, and then I reprimanded myself for being in the closet. And I think that a lot of people do this to themselves, and it's very difficult to climb out of because no matter how many times somebody who loves you very much says that you're good enough and that you can do whatever you want to do and you can be whoever you want to be and that people will accept you, it those words are completely meaningless unless you feel them inside yourself. And I really just didn't. I wanted to be somebody else. I wanted to be anybody other than me. And it wasn't until I started lifting those boundaries and limitations and accepting myself and deciding that I liked myself and that I was a good person and that I was going to make something of myself. It wasn't until then that I felt some sort of light and felt myself connected to the world, to people, to the earth. And that was the only thing that brought me out of it. And my purpose for writing My Friend Fear, honestly, the one purpose behind it is to help other people feel less alone. Because I think that is the biggest handicap anybody can have in their life is to feel alone. It will take everything you have away from you. Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a really <laughs> beautiful end to our conversation. So I want to finish with my final question, which I'm sure you've probably heard me ask. Um, and that is, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I honestly think it is somebody, what makes somebody unmistakable is someone that looks in the mirror and sees themselves and then sees other people with those eyes helping themselves and other people feel seen really makes somebody unmistakable. Wow. Um, well, this has been amazing. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work and, uh, your books? Um, my website, merely.com and, you know, just Googling me, merely Patel. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.